0: The bottom line in business, Voice America Business.
1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business channel. Now, here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
2: Well, good morning everyone and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Hope everybody's doing well today. We have a very special guest, Rayona Sharpneck, who is the founder of the Institute for Women's Leadership and also the author of a couple of books, her most recent being Trade Up: 5 Steps to Redesigning Your Leadership and Life from the Inside Out. Welcome, Rayona. Great to be with you, Cheryl. I'm so glad you're here, so are you in California today? Yes, I am. It's a kind of
3: half gloomy and half sunny day here in the San Francisco Bay Area.
2: Ah, yes, I'm looking out the window, seeing that same sky, but you know most of the time in the Bay Area, we have delightful weather, and it makes it worth living here, right? Yes, it does yeah it does so um you are. You are on the uh, the heels of the release of your brand-new book, Trade Up, and I had the opportunity to read it, and I'm very impressed, I have to tell you. It seems so pragmatic. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself first, and then let's get into the book. In 1991, you founded the Institute for Women's Leadership. Where did that come from?
3: Well, it's an interesting uh, roadmap, certainly not a, not a straightforward one. I majored in physical education in college because I was a very hardcore athlete and uh, went on to play professional sports, but I was always an educational purist at heart, and I mm-hmm. have a, a great appreciation for uh, the pragmatic and how to take very complex things and make them simple and usable uh, without losing the integrity of, okay. of the content. And um, so, with my backgrounds in education and professional sports, and then I did a, a stint with uh, family therapy and studied that discipline, then went on into business. I, I kind of put them all together, and started the institute uh, in 1991, as you said, to to really uh, increase the quality and quantity of women leaders
2: uh, for the world. Mm-hmm. Well, what got you interested to begin with in really promoting? women in leadership? Well, I started out
3: in uh, college. First of all, I never really um, felt too much of the effects of gender discrimination because Uh I grew up in a family with three older brothers and
2: basically (laughs) learned
3: from the get-go that I was on my own to make my way and to get my Mm -hmm. fair share. So I didn't really experience it until I got into college and realized that through the Title IX experience or lack thereof, Uh, that even though I was one of the most gifted athletes at the university, I wasn't eligible for college scholarships, so I had to pay my way while the guy sitting in the desk next to me got a full ride.
2: So uh, that was the beginning of
3: the recognition that something really had to be done there. And for some of our
2: guests who may be um, too young to remember what Title IX is, um, could you just give a little synopsis?
3: Yes, it's the federal legislation that requires all institutes of education that are funded by the federal government, which is basically all of them,
1: uh, uh-huh.
3: to uh, in the public education system anyway, to give uh, equal
2: opportunity funding resources, etc., to both mm-hmm. girls and boys in right. their athletic programs. I remember that this was really an important time, um, not just in colleges. Uh, it it really trickled down into all of the schools, high schools, elementary schools, um, and there were suddenly a. Whole a lot more women, not, well, by then they were girls, um, they were still girls, um, sports programs were beginning to appear, and there's been a lot of research done on how girls and participate in sports affects their self-esteem. Do you see that?
3: Oh, absolutely. There's no question that a, that a young girl, as she... Um, Becomes at home in her body and learns how to move and and, uh, execute certain skills really raises her confidence and her self-esteem. And it's also very, very healthy for learning teamwork and leadership
2: and those kinds of life lessons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, through the years um, in this work in leadership, I know that we've both seen how uh, sports analogies are used and there's sometimes there is criticism of that um, when we get into the corporate world. And um, there are some people who say that the sports analogy still really applies to men more than women, and most of that is because more men have had sports experiences, either in high school or college, than women. Um, what, what kind of reaction do you get from people when you use those analogies?
3: Well, I think it's true that um, certainly men still have a a much broader experience in the world of of sports and using those kind of metaphors, but I find it's really about sensitivity. You know, I use sports metaphors because they're closest to my heart and my life experience, and and I set a context for them, and I uh, make sure that they're understandable to my very multicultural population uh, in the work I do. Uh, but, you know, if I was a, a cook or a seamstress or a, a fisherman or something like that, I, I would use uh, different metaphors. I think the main thing is to make sure that what you're saying really communicates and lands on the radar of the person that you're
2: talking to. Right, right. Now, who who is your client these days? I mean, who's your typical client that you work with at the institute? Well,
3: primarily I would say our clients come from Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. Uh, we've enjoyed a, a about a 17-year run of, of being one of the pioneers in the women's leadership space. Uh, a lot of people followed up in the uh, later 90s and the 2000s with leadership training for women, but we really were one of the first that came to it without um, it, the pronoun effect, I call it, when the universities. <laughs> Uh, started getting into this particular leadership space uh, in the executive education offerings and stuff. They basically took their brochures, changed the pronouns from he to she and uh, his to hers, and, you know, went to market with basically a generic curriculum, whereas we have stayed true from the get-go to what are the things that are uniquely female but also um, critical to the success of leaders and organizations for the 21st century.
2: So what are the things that are uniquely female?
3: Well, there's a lot of things that are part of our culture uh, having to do with uh, sustainability. In other words, the whole notion of building and sustaining community Um, throughout generations and eons, really, women have been the ones accountable for keeping the village intact, for making sure there were adequate resources for food and shelter and nourishment and and you know, survivability, actually. And so women are great at community building. They're great at inclusion. They're great at taking in a lot of uh, disparate points of view to come to the best solution. Um, They're actually very good at communication and relationship because that's also part of our uh, contribution, I think, uh, over the years. Right. And uh, there's ways that women think about problem solving and go about problem solving that are quite different. And we now have the science, the technology, to do brain research in real time using men and women's subjects, and we see that their brains actually function differently in problem-solving, decision-making situations than male brains.
2: Isn't that fascinating? It really
3: is. It's, it's incredible
2: that the science has finally caught up with
3: what we've known intuitively.
2: <laughs> that woman's intuition, again. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's, it's so interesting that, you know, over the centuries, I think the idea of women's intuition has been um, somewhat revered and kind of treated like, oh, how sweet, um, you know, kind of between those two poles. And, in fact, um, there's a lot of power in that. And and I often see that in how a person is present. And you talk about the concept of presence in your book. Could you elaborate a little bit on that?
3: Sure. Uh, This goes back to, uh, again, um, our friends in science are being so helpful these years
2: in being Uh able to
3: substantiate uh, what we've been able to observe. Um, You know, the neurobiologists would tell us now that while we always thought that the um, The nucleus was the brains of the cell. We now have come to find out that it's actually the membrane that surrounds the cell that actually receives the initial uh, perception or intrusion into the cell's world, if you will, and that mimics exactly what happens for human beings. So our perceptive filters are what channel everything that comes in to our uh, thinking, our physical, visceral, um, physiology and so forth. And mm-hmm. women, uh, we know, even girl babies, um, identify more with uh, facial expressions and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think what we, what we can surmise is that women have this ability to kind of read the vibe, if you will, read the, the um, essence of what's going on. They call it women's mm-hmm. intuition in that I got a gut feel about this,
2: Right, Uh, right. But I think
3: there's actually things that are going on at a molecular level that someday we'll be able to talk about, but right now it's kind of um, unique to women in that they have a a, a clear and constant interpretation uh, aspect of of how things come at them. Hmm. So there's
2: almost like this process running in the background. It's almost like some computer server happening while they're... While they're doing whatever they're doing, yeah, there's that's a right. process going on all the time that is almost like the lens that they look
3: through. Yeah, you could say, again, going back to this uh, um, um, neuroscience, that the, um, that the membrane that covers the cell and then at the macro level, the, the skin and the outer layers of our dermis, which Perceive and receive information. Mm-hmm. Receive these very, very fine, uh, seemingly unintelligible uh, energy bursts of, of what's going on. So we can uh-huh. tell when somebody's being honest or not honest, or when something's um, apparently a, a good way to help the people in the organization move forward. Uh, again, I think we're kind of on the cutting edge here, Cheryl. With uh, what we know from our own experience versus what science is now able to substantiate. And, and that's a very exciting field, this neurobiology.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I imagine that um, some of this can be taught, and you really explore that idea throughout the book. And, um, but what about the idea of teaching men I mean, there must be some part of them that has a little bit of capability in this, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, no.
3: Yeah. Um, guys are guys are very um, uh, coachable and trainable, and and what I find is that they have they have a different biology, but they also have the ability to uh, make these discernments if they're given the opportunity and some training in how to track certain things. Um, you know, the, the brain science tells us that a woman's brain at rest is more active than a man's brain at full capacity. Oh, wow, that's
2: fascinating.
3: Yeah, it's, well, There's it's all about the uh, neural fibers that are going right. between the two halves of the brain and, and just right. how much activity is going on. So, you know, I mean, I guess you could say that biologically women have an advantage in that they have this increased amount of activity that's tracking and receiving
2: information.
3: Um, I guess but, that
2: explains why um, multitasking is easier for women than men. Yeah, it it's, yeah. It's, uh, certainly starts to make sense. Well, great. We have more to talk about with Rayona Sharpack. next back.
0: All we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts. We talk, talk money, money all, the, all time. the time. Voice America Business.
1: more and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the Journey with Karen humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing The journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk.
0: Money, money, up to date business and financial news. Money. Money. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And welcome back. We're speaking with Rayona back this morning, who is the author of Trade Up Five Steps to Redesigning Your Leadership and Life from the Inside Out. I love that title, Rayona. So, you know, the idea of transforming your leadership and your life, that's a big promise.
3: Yeah, it is. But uh, when you think about the design of human beings as as complicated as we are, we're, we're actually very simple in our design, and I talk about that in the book, that huh. um, fundamentally all 6.2 or 6.4 billion of us, however many there are, uh, we all have the same architecture, if you will, and that is that our, our context, our belief system, our, the totality of our conclusions orchestrates our behavior, and our huh. behavior then produces impact some of which is desirable, some of which is undesirable. So if you take this very simple architecture and you start to map it against your life, there are implications for it at every level from uh, you know, being a parent to being a chief executive officer.
2: And you talk about this belief system or these assumptions as context, as you say, and um, that changing your context is your first step. To shifting the way you behave or show up in the world and how your leadership shows up. Give us an example of the context that can shift.
3: Well, in the book, I talk a fair amount about my, my own experience growing up. And again, I use context as the, um, the all encompassing uh, <laughs> um, container of everything that we yeah. believe, everything that we've been taught, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the, the notion there is that uh, if, if you've been given something from early childhood, like my parents gave me a, a conclusion about life, that you'll never get anywhere in life if you don't keep your nose to the grindstone. Oh, boy. And we had a very strong work ethic in my family, and, and I basically adopted that as a belief system, as a, as a conclusion like, oh, that's how life is. And, yeah. uh, and really embodied that and, and used it to do a lot of things, my life that I'm very, very proud of. You know, I was the Nevada State tennis champion in singles and doubles as a, as a teenager, and I never had any formal instruction. Wow. Uh, but through this hard work of going up and hitting the ball up against the wall, you know, a thousand times a day, um, <laughs> you know, I, I went on to win that title. And then right. I've done other things in my life that are equally as, as uh, I think, magnificent and unexpected, mm-hmm. uh, all through this notion of nose to the grindstone. Now, at some point, it became clear to me that uh, even with all my accomplishments, there was a downside or what I call the collateral damage of that uh, context mm-hmm. and that Nose of the Grindstone was producing uh, high blood pressure, um, all kinds of downside, you know, irritability, right. um, or shortness with my staff and my daughter and so forth. So there was consequences to it that I no longer wanted to put up with. And that's where the whole notion of trading up comes, is that first you have to see the one you have, how it's worked for you, how it works against you, and then make a decision, I'm going to trade up.
2: And then how did you realize that you needed to do that? I mean, you were obviously having some, um, some consequences of your behavior, and that probably got your attention um, in terms of your physical health and, and just the environment. But how did you decide... What to do?
3: Well, actually, I've been studying this for years, but really came to uh, more of a formula uh, out of my own pain. And I always say that there's two things that precipitates trading up. One is either pain, something that you're unhappy with or that's falling short, or possibility, something that's very exciting and compelling that you really want and you're just not going to be able to get there from here. So it's in that um, appetite for change that you find yourself in a situation where what is my context, you know, what what beliefs or conclusions have I grown up with that I've really turned into what I call my Popeye muscle, you know, the thing <laughs> that if overused uh, becomes my weakness. And, oh. and that's really the, the process. And the book actually walks you through the kinds of questions and the kind of kinds of interactions that you can have to get to that revealing state. Yeah.
2: Do you think that um, people respond more when they are in the pain space than in an opportunity space?
3: Yeah, I do. I mean, I look at my own life and, you know, what what is it that brings me to certain life changes and it's almost always pain more than possibility, although I have to say I'm kind of wired for the, the possibility stuff. I'm a, I'm a real dreamer and idealist, but... Um, even with that, I think pain trumps that.
2: Do you think we can, um, I mean, that seems to be almost um, an epidemic, and in, in, I don't know if it's an epidemic with women or just in um, the generations of, you know, this last generation and um, our generation. Do you think that that can shift with this coming generation, this younger group of girls turning into women, um, where they can actually begin to question their assumptions or their beliefs at a very young age?
3: Well, I'll actually know more about that when I roll out this next uh, curriculum. I've been asked for decades now, really, uh, by women to please, please, please build something for the younger generation because virtually everyone who's ever done our training or experienced our coaching um, says, I wish I would have had this when I was younger. And uh-huh. so I'm in the midst of building a curriculum that will be for either college and perhaps as early as high school um, women, young women, to, to have this capability earlier in life because it's certainly one of those things that you want to have for your whole life.
2: Right, right. What do you think, um, how different could life be for young women if they
3: lived in this space? Well, I think it would change everything. For, uh, for one thing, uh, individually, they would be able to see things a lot faster and intervene a lot sooner mm-hmm. and not suffer for so many years, which a lot of those of us in the boomer and even the later X generation have, have found ourselves in. I right. think collectively it's got enormous power to be able to accelerate the kind of societal level change that we need Uh, In terms of women's equality, so I really do believe I I wrote the book so that it would be as relevant for my grandchildren as it is for people in this day and age.
2: Right, right. So, um, you know, if you think about, you know, say you touch one person in an organization who is a leader, and that person starts, you know, behaving in a different way. Do you? Do you see that they somehow are um, sometimes not embraced when their behavior changes, or the organization doesn't necessarily embrace the change that this person begins to make? Yeah,
3: I like to think of it as organizational antibodies. You know, (laughs) um, when somebody goes in to create and lead change within an organization, they're disrupting the homeostasis. You know organizations find their own way of kind of just holding its own, and hmm. so a a new um a new idea or a new approach will create that kind of disruption that causes the organizational antibodies to come up and and kind of fight back now at that point, a leader has several choices you know you can either hold and just give in and and go with the status quo Right. Uh, you can flee and just get out of that system, although any system you go into, you're going to find the same uh, kind of dynamic. Or you can stay and continue to move the system and, uh, you know, kind of monitor its readiness for the kind of change that you want to lead.
2: Right, right. Well, what if the organization was not ready well, that's where you have those
3: choices, and I think it's really important, uh, particularly for women who very often are the front runners, are the person who see the change needs to happen, that we make those discernments and say, um, right. is this an organization that deserves the privilege of my uh, contribution? Right, right. That in and of itself is a context shift. Um, right. You know, a lot of people are just happy to be employed, especially in this economy, but yeah. I think uh, more to the point is, Uh, the women that we work with are really top-notch and and have a huge contribution to make. So it's really about is the organization deserving of that contribution? If it is, then stay and make it and recruit others, or if not, uh, find one that's more ready.
2: You know, um, in the high-tech world, um, what we often hear is that it's really a guy's game and that women have a tougher time breaking in to the tech world and that the organizations are still very much the male model. Um, What's your take on that?
3: Well, I think it's interesting when um, some of the more uh, prestigious institutions, Harvard, Wharton, uh, to name a couple, um, find themselves promoting... Uh, things that are considered classic feminine values or feminine approaches, uh, mm-hmm. like the whole notion of a matrix organization yeah, is much more of a feminine invention than it was a male invention. Right. And, uh, and I think the tradition of hierarchy and command and control and all that um, has its place. You know, there's times when you're in the middle of a four-alarm fire when you want hierarchy. You know, you don't want there to right be inquiry right <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, But for today's organizations, given how global and complex and, and interdependent we all are, I think we're going to see that the institutions are going to need to follow and be more inclusive of what I would call traditionally feminine or female uh, orientation
2: right And of course in the last few years um, probably the last 10 years, the whole concept of the female brain drain from corporate America, I, I don't know corporate America is the right term anymore, multinational corporations, mm-hmm. um, has been huge. You know, women are saying, you know what, I don't want to wait for things to change. I'm going to go and do my own thing, start my own business. And I'm sure you see that a lot. Um, do you think that when women start their own businesses and run their own companies, that they really are different?
3: Oh, I have no question about it. I've worked with um, hundreds of women, actually, that have started their own businesses and and found their entrepreneurial spirit as a way to express mm-hmm. their contribution and mm-hmm. and their unique way of doing things. Uh, the statistics bear this out in terms of the number of women-owned businesses that are started every month. Uh, it's It's really astronomical if you think about it demographically it's it's a huge huge trend that isn't slowing anytime soon and right. so then when i get to work inside those organizations and i i start to you know poke around and see you know what are the pain points or what are the areas that, that they're trying to attend to it, it's not always the same as what i would find in a corporation now having said that any organization gets to a certain point of complexity where it's going to have to deal with of no matter what size it is. And so that's where I think the difference in how women go about it, uh, their more inclusive nature in terms of bringing people into the problem-solving realm is is really going to pay off.
2: Well, there are some specific skills that you call out in the book that um, have a little twist to what has been traditionally called important leadership, I'm going to talk about that when we come back right
0: after this break. All we talk about is money. Call us toll free eight six six four seven two fifty seven ninety and talk to the experts. We talk money all the time. Voice of America Business.
1: Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What?
0: I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.
1: The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity, but being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On The Economy and the Markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cleggett broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world.
0: Stocks, bonds, 401ks, investments, refinancing. We can help you. Call now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: We're back and we're speaking with Raeanne Sharpneck, author of Great right Up, Five Steps for Redesigning Your Leadership and Life from the Inside Out. So let's talk about those five steps before we get into some of those specific skills, Rayona. What are the five steps for redesigning your leadership and life from the inside out? Well, the first one we talked a little bit about, which is to reveal uh, one's
3: existing context. And mm-hmm. because we have such a plethora of context, I'm using the word both collectively and then individually. Mm-hmm. So we have this amalgamation of beliefs and conclusions about life Um, that come from our inheritance, you know, our family of origin, our ethnicity, our gender, all these things about who I'm supposed to be. And those get amalgamated into a kind of um, core set of conclusions that we have. And so through this process of revealing, you start to see, oh, I've got a context about everything, and I certainly have a context (laughs) about myself. I'm reminded of one of our executives who was running a billion-dollar company, and when we uh, got to the root of hers, it was that she didn't believe she was as smart as everybody else, so she had to work twice as hard.
2: Um,
3: So revealing is the first step. Once you reveal the core context that you have, the conclusions that operate as reality, then the next step uh, is to really take ownership for that it's yours and that it's served you and that it's got a lot of upside value, uh, that there are lots of ways in which you've used that context to benefit yourself. Uh, this right. woman that had reached this pinnacle of her career had certainly leveraged her ability to work twice as hard uh, to overcome her, what she thought was a shortfall, which turns out to be, you know, not accurate at all, right. but uh, anyway, and then to look at the downside and see what is the unintended consequences or collateral damage that this context might be causing yourself or others. So that's the second step. And when you've done those two really well and and you really do need to do them really well before you do the trade-up, which is step three, is to design or author or invent a new context that you could be delighted to live the rest of your life from. Uh And that's really an act of invention. It's it's a creative act, much like a, a pianist sits down at the keyboard and and something comes out called music or an artist stands before a canvas and creates a painting. It's a, it's a generative act. And so when you create that new context, that new conclusion, uh, then it needs staying power.
1: And mm-hmm. the last
3: two steps, four and five, are all about how to sustain a new context. Uh, step four being the new practices that you'd need to start, uh, mm-hmm. behavioral things to start doing and, and old things to stop doing. Mm-hmm. And then the last step, step number five, is really the network of support, how to engage in projects and with people who will help you sustain this new context over the long
2: haul. So in a lot of ways, even though this structure is is the platform to make the changes, the changes become very personal and individual. Yeah, that's right. Um, This is a a resource for, that's why I say,
3: redesigning your leadership and life from the inside out it's really a chance for each of us to do some very deep introspection on what makes me me, and while it may be working for me, there are ways it may be working against me, and, mm-hmm. and so is there a different context that would give me a new future? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I've never seen the old context just evaporate.
2: <laughs> they right. don't just
3: go away. You know, when I need right. to kick in the nose of the grindstone, it is there on a moment's notice, and I'm right. happy for that. But it's the expansion to, in my case, it always turns out with grace and ease is a much more useful context to live the second half of my life from.
2: Hmm. Grace and ease, I love those words. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you say, that it's not easy to make change happen outside yourself, much inside yourself. And I imagine that people might begin to go through these steps and then get stuck. Mm. So it's not as if you go all the way through the first time, right?
3: Yeah, I think where where people get stuck is where they, um, I call it, um, we go into our head and, and I relate it to, uh, or at least I have the, the coaching tip there, your head is like a bad neighborhood, don't go in there alone. <laughs> um, the the importance of this kind of work is in dialogue and is in using other people as a training buddy. You know, I have a Mm. friend who's a a two-time Olympian in the pentathlon, and that's five events. And you kind of ask, gosh, how does someone, you know, achieve Olympic-level caliber in five events? Well, it's through practice and through training buddies. And so the same thing applies here, is that when you're reinventing yourself, redesigning yourself, uh, you really need support. And so when you get stuck, that's the first time to hit speed dial or IM somebody on your cell phone and, and get into
2: communication. Well, and I dare say that that's probably the time when most, I, I don't know if this is a, a female thing, but a lot of women that I know don't make the call at that point. They don't make the call when it's, you know, I'm not feeling right, this isn't working, I, I can't figure this out, because there's this sense that, you know, we're supposed to figure it out ourselves. Yeah, and I, I think
3: it falls along gender line in a couple ways. Um, men have a context or an inheritance that they're supposed to do things, uh, figure it out on their own, so they're not supposed to ask for help. Uh, women, on the other hand, have a context that they don't want to impose. So both of those contexts lead people to become Lone Rangers and not move out into the community and out to their network of support, which is exactly the wrong thing to do is to isolate. That's right. when you need people the most, because for one thing, if you put what's going on with you on loudspeaker, somebody else could be your sanity check.
2: Right. Right. How much do you think that um, that whole concept of the Lone Ranger has fed uh, what's going on with uh, the corporations and financial meltdown that's happening, and do you think there's any, any connection there? Well, I think there's a lot of inheritance that we
3: have in this country in particular, uh, the United States, that is, that we, from our inception, were created along individual f- freedom and liberty. Right. And so we have a very, very deep uh, thread of individuality that runs through us, and that's been rewarded and encouraged over the generations, so um, I, I think it's it's tough to overcome that from from the mm-hmm. fact that it's everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you add to that the enormous amount of work that most people have to get done, that just you know closing their do- door and burying their head trying to get a, dig out of their emails every day uh, is a is a full time job. So I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to people isolating. The problem is is that if we don't see that our very survival depends on relationship and being connected to others then we become the arsonist in our own fire the
2: arsonists are oh we, we started hmm yeah <laughs> you know um, I've I've often used that um, analogy around the arsonist um, to describe people who are disruptive in organizations you know they like to start the fire and then stand back and, you know, not claim any responsibility for it and watch everybody run to put it out. Um, But I had not thought of ourselves as being our own arsonist. It's it's like self-sabotage.
3: Yeah, and it's very unintended. I mean, no one wakes up in the morning thinking, oh, gee, I think I'll sabotage myself or whatever. (laughs) Right. But but if you really examine one of my... um, great gifts, I think, has been to work with people on that self-examination mm. of finding their f- finger on the trigger of the gun that just blew off their foot.
1: Right, um, it's, right.
3: That's where the power is, and, and that's why Trade Up, I think, has received such uh, great reviews, is because people see, oh, so you're actually returning people to the source of their power, which is, is, is ability to you know, if you, if you take the case that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of what you do with it, then you want the context shifting to be a birthright. It's a very deep concept that we're to live our lives.
2: Well, and one of the things that I know that you've talked about in the book is redefining success for yourself. And that goes back to the first step of revealing your existence context Um, or maybe that would be the third step of designing your new context to redefine success and um, i'm going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back
0: all we talk about is money call us toll free 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts we talk money all the time voice america business
1: Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.
0: All we talk about is money. Call us toll free, 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts. We talk money all the time. Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: Welcome back. Speaking today with Riona Riona, in your book, Trade Up, you talk a lot about um, redefining success and what that really means for people um, do you do you get a sense that um, the definition of success um, is not a fit for most people when you look at what society says success is do you get do people respond and say but that's not really me
3: well I think it's interesting in our classes we do a lot of introspection along those lines and and while it may not be what people uh, think they define as success, it's what orchestrates their actions. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at um, what people will tolerate and put up with to stay in a high-paying job that allows them to have the Mercedes-Benz and the, um, you know, the nice house and uh, the upscale part of town, you begin to wonder, like, who's really <laughs> running the show, and and if in fact our definition of success isn't largely skewed what other people think. Right. Um, what what I try to do is is get people back to the source of what is going to be the most important way they've spent their life. And very few people are going to say, you know, driving a Lexus. Uh, right. People really are, are deeply uh, motivated and desirous of making a contribution and making the world better. So try to work with people to get back to defining success according to... You know, what do you want to look back on your deathbed and say, "Boy, I had a great
2: life." Mm, Yeah. Well, and you had a defining moment in terms of defining your own success. Um. Well, I've had a lot of them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, one of them that's mentioned
3: is about Hillary Clinton. Oh, oh gosh. Well, there's been a lot of water under the bridge (laughs) since then. (laughs) Um, What I consider. I, I think now what I'm, what I'm most grateful for, I guess, in terms of my, my successes professionally is my Rolodex because mm-hmm. I, from the very get-go, uh, created and established and sustained relationships as a way to make contributions to each other. And so uh-huh. I always thought of people in terms of, gee, what, could I, what resource could I be to them? Who do I know that I could connect them with so that they can get what they need? And by living my life that way, it's put me in touch with a lot of people who have reciprocated and therefore had a lot of um, uh, a lot of very fortuitous uh, interactions with people that have a lot of power at a lot larger level.
2: And so you've been able to gain access to some of those people because you have relationships with people around them.
3: Yes, and also my affiliation at Harvard has certainly um, yeah. increased uh, a great deal, my Rolodex, right. and who I have access to.
2: Right, right. So, um, can you just take one minute and talk about Harvard? You know, yeah, it's I, got it's such a as, such a. I mean, talk about uh, or an institution that has a reputation for being a guy's game. <laughs> right. Well, I uh, my next book uh, might be from Sparks,
3: Nevada, to Harvard Square. Uh, because I'm a little bit of a fish out of water there, except that I find them very receptive to this methodology. Yeah. and The book, yeah. book was actually launched there. I'm uh, chair of the leadership development committee at the Women's Leadership Board there. And um, it's, it's one of those things where academia has certain virtues and benefits, and it has areas where it needs to be contributed to, and I, and I think I've been able to reap the benefits as well as make mm-hmm. a contribution.
2: hmm yeah, and even that is um, such a great learning because so many times people will say, "Well, why you know why should I be involved with something that you know doesn't completely do things the way I want them to do it?" Um, but instead, you've looked for how can I be a contributor and how can I help change things, you know, one step at a time, um, and and ended up you know having some huge um, influence in how they do things. Um, So let's just take a couple of minutes before we close and talk about some of the specific skills that you think there needs to be a little twist on. One of them that I really love in the book, you know, we talk about active listening, um, and that's been talked about for years, and yet you say there's a little bit of a different twist on that, and it's called generous listening. Could you share what that is?
3: Well, yeah, um, you know, if we think about how human beings are designed, we are a little bit loaded at the factory with this binary listening, this ability to listen uh, to everything through a binary system of right, wrong, good, bad, uh, fit, doesn't fit, agree, disagree. It doesn't take any discipline to listen that way. You just are able to do it almost automatically as you're raised with language. Um, A more um, expansive way to listen An additional way to listen, to add to one's inventory, is this whole notion of generosity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Generous listening or listening with a spirit of generosity is to assume that other people see things you don't see, um, to be curious and fascinated with another point of view, another perspective, particularly one that doesn't match your own. And I, I find, as do the people that participate in our trainings, that by just bringing generous listening into the workplace or into the family, into relationships, interpersonal relationships, people get enormous value, and it really allows them to shift their context and their way of seeing uh, the world, both individually as well as the bigger
2: picture. Mm -hmm. And then you also talk about agreement versus alignment. Yeah, that's an interesting
3: notion where... In most organizations, where things get bogged down or meetings just get become just untenable is uh, this whole area of everyone needing to agree. Um, you know, the, the notion that you're going to get five people in a room or 15 people in a room and everyone's going to agree on everything is just kind of ludicrous, but we right. spend an awful lot of time in meetings with that. The model of alignment is a context shift from as long as I can see how your proposal will move my commitment along, I'll get behind it even though it's not the way I would do it. So it starts wow. with having people share what are our common commitments, what are our uncommon commitments, and where we have common commitments, how can we move them forward even if it isn't the way I would do it, I'll get behind it and right. let's, get the, let's get
2: the game in play. Well, there is so much more in the book and so much more we could be talking about today. We're coming to a close here for our hour together. And, Rayona, I know people will want to know more and they want to know how to get in touch with you. How can they do that?
3: Well, the easiest way is to go to our website, uh, womensleadership.com. Uh, there's lots of ways to find us, uh, email, phone calls, etc. We have training programs that we conduct every year throughout the year and uh, just really would like to expand our community, so I hope your listeners will take us up on the offer to come to our website.
2: Well, I'm sure they will. And your book, Trade Up, Five Steps for Redesigning Your Leadership and Life from the Inside Out, can be purchased in bookstores worldwide, I believe.
3: Yes, that's right. And, and obviously there's online uh, capabilities also,
2: so um, plug in that name and you should be able to find it. Rayona, thanks so much for being with us today, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you again. Let's have you back, uh, you know, about a year from now and see what you're doing and what has changed and how trade up made a difference in organizations around the world. Thanks so much, Rayona, for being with us. Thank you, Cheryl. Great being Remember, everybody, in TIG, the world should become a better place because of a conversation that matters. Cheryl and is-